Good morning, and welcome to the Apologetics.com radio show. I am your host uh, for the evening, Harry Edwards. Uh, we were here last uh, week, Jacob, right? So yes. uh, we're back. We're back again. Uh, but this time we have Lenny Esposito with us. Yeah, I get to I get to join. Yeah. <laughs> Lenny, when was the last time you were here? Uh, well, we took a little holiday break, so I, it was November. Uh, of course, over Christmas, I got uh, a, a small bout of COVID, but that yeah. wasn't too too terrible. I, I, I don't think anyone was uh, spared that. Yeah, I, I don't I, I don't think yeah. it either they haven't been or they won't be yeah. at some point it seems. Yeah. No, I had it too. I had so. it too. Uh, well, uh, I know you've been busy with Come reason yes, yes. Tell us what's the latest. Uh, just been going around. The the speaking has started to pick up again, which is nice, even though, you know, we're uh, seeing this Omicron wave, I think, that's starting to diminish. But uh, got a busy year ahead of me looking uh, at a conference in March, the end of March in Corona, California, that we're going to be putting on Dare to Defend and uh, have mainline speakers, Sean McDowell, J.P. Moreland, Ken Samples, others going to be there. Uh, Jacob's going to do a session for us in one of our breakouts. So it would be nice. So uh, you can get tickets that you can right now. Go to daretodefend.com or comereason.com. And you can buy your tickets, check out the lineup, and uh, hope to see everyone there. Great. So. Yeah, that's going to be great. Uh, how about you, Jacob? How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Yeah, just... Uh keeping busy you know yeah. i'm grateful for all the opportunities god is still opening up as you said lenny uh regardless of what's going on um uh, in terms of coronavirus and yeah. omicron and everything but yeah grateful for all the opportunities that's there and i was telling lenny a while ago that i'm uh, currently devoting much of my time in terms of developing i might have mentioned this earlier as well uh, the whole church-based academy mm, thing that's great. so i'm devoting a lot of time into that uh basically giving it a structure uh, which could be appealing to the churches and pastors and ministers to really adopt that. And I think it's very much needed in terms of understanding the need for cultural exegesis alongside yeah. biblical exegesis that we do. Yeah. And that's actually going to fit very well with our show this evening, because we think, uh, and, and later that's going to be toward the end, uh, strategies for uh, culture change. Yeah. Because uh, that's what what's needed. Um, uh, on top of just like salvific assurance, right? Uh, gospel. If you have been uh, listening to our podcasts, you know every third Sunday I have Jacob and Lenny, and we have been for several months now discussing Paul Gould's book, Cultural Apologetics. And I highly recommend it, and it's been fun reading it and rereading it. And so now we've come to chapter six. We want to talk about conscience. Now, the first part of the book, uh, I mean, first part of the chapter, uh, talks about longing. and um, But we're going to skip over that, and we're going to go straight into how I titled this show, Conscience, Our Moral Compass. And again, uh, as cultural apologists, we're mindful to always create common ground. You know, we want to be able to converse with our seeker or skeptic and come to certain agreements um, before we, um, you know, do a monologue of the five reasons why you should believe in God. I think, uh, especially today, in today's culture, it's good to have a friendly, civil dialogue and to actually find out the starting points. Hmm. And so one starting point is our conscience. Um, no matter who you are, where you've lived, what cultural background you come from, male, female, whatever, every human being has a conscience. Uh, some have good consciences, some have bad consciences, but we do have a conscience. Uh, and I want to say even, and I want your thoughts on this, even with the fall, uh, I think, me meaning even when sin entered uh, our world, right, and and we're now in our fallen state, uh, and some of us are being renewed day by day. Uh, we call them Christians, right? But even in our uh, struggles, um, wouldn't you say that our consciences serve as good guides for uh, how to behave properly? What do you guys think? Uh well, Go ahead, ahead, Lenny. Well, I think uh, obviously yes, in the sense that there it 
shows that we have a an understanding that there is a right and a wrong that there are moral duties and obligations to which each individual must adhere or or abide by um the specifics on those duties and obligations may vary from culture to culture, but there's actually quite, and sociologists will tell you, there, there's actually quite a lot of commonality that would surprise people. Um, you know, one culture may say a man should marry one wife. Another culture can say a man can marry many wives. There is no culture that says a man can take another man's wife. So there is some universality there. There is obvious in certain cultures um, where the idea of, uh, especially in honor shame cultures, where you 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 know you're disgraced the family because you were raped, say a, a young girl in an Islamic culture, even though she was a victim, she's considered damaged and and disgraced. Uh, the family name and and she brings shame on the family there's there's problems with that obviously but the idea that there is a value system and there is we know that there is a good and a bad out there we may not be clear on exactly what that is but i think it it does a good job in in showing us that we're moral beings and we know that we fall short of the goodness we should be right Providing. Yeah, uh, and I'll just add um, this to that, is that it kind of proves what the scripture tells us, you know, um, though we are broken and we are, uh, there is depravity, I mean, it's not absolute, like, in terms yeah. of, like, uh, it, it affects all aspects of our life, but doesn't actually, uh, we are not absolutely depraved, and yeah. that we are no, no more redeemable. That's not the case anymore. Uh, I think it confirms what Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, and it's very clear. It says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bear witness, yeah. and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even accuse them. Yeah. Right, so so it confirms that the way we are created, that we are created in God's image, and He has um, infused within us or created us in such a way that we do actually have that plumb line of yeah. conscience within us, that that uh, uh, that measures itself on the basis of a certain kind of moral moral standard. And the question is, uh, where do we get that standard from? Yeah. So uh, good segue, Jacob. Uh, that's what we're going to be talking about tonight is uh, the moral, uh, just where, where do moral values come from? We know they exist. If you're able to affirm that moral values exist, ultimately the conclusion is that God exists. So we, we want to cover uh, the premises and the conclusion here. And I know Paul Gold in, the, in his book covered this. I, I think this is what we're attaching to conscience, the fact that we have, like you said, the moral law written uh, on our hearts. If you're a C.S. Lewis fan, uh, you probably know that you'll find this argument in uh, mere Christianity. Harry, before you get into that, yeah. uh, I just want to make a slight distinction here, though. Uh, um, if we, we have maybe Christians and non-believers who are listening to us today, Scripture is very clear. Uh, it talks about the work of the law is written in the hearts of non-believers, whereas in the hearts of believers, he has written the law itself. And there is a huge difference there. Uh, and Scripture maintains that distinction clearly and conscience Tells us exactly which way to lean. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Uh, you know, before the show, we were talking about the uh, just morality as an argument f for the existence of God. You said uh, that it's one of your favorites, right? It is. It is. T tell us why. Uh, the very reason you mentioned, Harry, uh, I think it, it translates into all cultures, all people, wherever. I've traveled quite a bit. I've lived in different countries, different cultures. Uh, I have found longings on, among people and their public behavior and how they want to conduct their society and life. Um, as much as we may see a lot of, and as human beings, we tend to see uh, contrast and differences easily. 
uh, we don't get much appeal in terms of like seeing the commonalities. And I think there is much common among the uh, among people around the world in terms of moral law that they uh, esteem and want to be perfected by. So yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's true. That's people get it. They yes. understand it. Uh, you don't need to be. Uh, you know, have a PhD in philosophy to understand that there are certain things that are internal and they guide you and you kind of know the difference between good and bad. Imagine know? if there was no universality to this, the whole idea of moral law. Could you even travel outside uh, to some other land of yeah. uh, a different culture? And really survive there and be able to return to your own land. Right, right. That, I, I don't think that that will even be possible. That'd be kind of scary. Yes, because you you get there and you go. I wonder what what they do here. You know, do they uh, eat? Uh, what, what what kinds of things do they eat? Do they eat animals or do they eat you or yeah, vegetables? Eat, you know? eat each other. <laughs> and it's in, you see these negative utopian ideas in the in the movies and in television, right? The the First one that comes to mind is an old Star Trek episode called Amok Time where they go into a parallel – Kirk goes into a parallel universe and it's the evil version of the <laughs> Enterprise and everybody is trying to backstab each other just to get ahead. That's the whole, that's the whole goal. But the premise doesn't work. You know, you have to have a universality idea of good, of progress – be- and, and I was in a debate with a, with a philosophy prof on – the moral law on the moral argument and he posits what if there was an evil god and uh, you know evil is just endemic to who he is why wouldn't though the things that we now label as evil and bad why wouldn't they just be true and and i said well first of all that that can't be because there's evil can't exist in and of itself there's no such thing as pure evil. Everything, every evil act has to have some good in it. Even if that good is, you know, seeking personal pleasure. Pleasure is a good in and of itself. It's only the way you uh, uh, try to achieve pleasure. If it's pleasure by torturing others, then that's the wrong way to go about it. But but that doesn't make pleasure itself bad. But you can't think of anything that's purely evil and no good. Yeah. And and so in order for societies to progress, in order for societies to work, you you'd never get out of the stone age. Yeah. You'd be killing each other. Yeah. You there, there would be no you, you know you you the the species would basically exterminate itself. You can't not have this as a universal. It yeah. just doesn't exist. Yeah. Again, you know, if we're going to follow Augustine's line of thinking, right? Yeah. I mean uh, evil has no ontological right. status, meaning it's not a thing. It's a, it's a, privation. It's a privation. Although, it's although a the guy I debated did not hold to evil as a privation, which I thought was fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he knew that he, and, and he, well, denied he, it, or yeah, he well, knew. Yeah, he he. Yeah, I think he had a more Eastern view okay. of, of evil, which was which okay. was interesting. Yeah, well, but yeah. still, he would use the Western concept to say God can't exist. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's why I think we were talking about this a while ago, right? Within the Eastern world, um, th- that's why there's this emphasis on balancing your good and evil, because good is not good in itself, yeah. or evil is not evil in itself. You have to balance both so that you ultimately become part of this impersonal reality, um, which can cannot judge because it's not a person. In the bigger picture, and maybe we'll talk about this later, that kind of view is just not livable, and like you were saying. Right. Uh, those who hold that, they actually long to be unshackled from that idea. So what happens is that then in that case, you create a society that is, uh, you you encounter a lot of contrast and disparity. Uh, that's why in the Eastern world, if uh, whoever travels, you can definitely see there are multi-billionaires doing innovations and in technology and engaged in uh, anything that you would see in the Western world. At the same time, contrasted with utter poverty. Mm-hmm. And there's a complete disregard for uh, 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 that kind of lifestyle at the same time. But it is con- continued in such a way uh, that it, it is seen as part of that uh, harmonizing a society with both. You know, you're seeing evil and good together in such a way that you're trying to balance it so that there might be some kind of con- cosmic reward right. of our existence. So, so even just a uh, first glance uh, – analysis or critique of that, that 
just doesn't seem fair, right? Doesn't seem right as well. And that's why the longing for justice, right. again, another thing which is common among all people at all, in all cultures. Right. You know, we all long for mm-hmm. justice. We somehow uh, sense this that ultimately there has to be something that is good, right. uh, uh, good that would you know uh, that would bring about the true justice that we all long for. It, this was actually the message that made Christianity so popular in the early modern world, in the early Roman world, I'm sorry. Uh, it was, it was the, the idea that you didn't have to stay within your birth system um, it's why Christianity was mocked initially by the Roman elite as the religion of women and slaves. That's how they would right. they would castigate it. But two things happened. First of all, they would try to quelch the message of Christianity, and Christians would happily go to their martyrdom rather than you know uh, deny Christ. And Roman society couldn't figure this out. It just didn't make sense. You know, to burn a little incense. What are you doing? Yeah. Uh, but they they say, no, we serve something higher. And it's because of that we are all free. Even if we're slaves, we are free. And that's resonated so deeply with the slave class. You know, what, 60, 70 percent of the empire was enslaved or lower class. And then, of course, women didn't have near the authority of men. And so you heard them... <clears throat> They heard these Christians embrace that, and they saw this movement, and they said, that will make me free, even if I'm in this— da- and, and that's why Christianity exploded. Yeah. I'm so, wondering if maybe—and we'll probably talk about this in the second half of the show—if that's a message we need to get back to. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. So uh, hang in there. If you're listening, we will definitely get to the benefits uh, that Christianity has provided the world. But uh, going back again to C.S. Lewis— in Mere Christianity, he outlines his argument here. And um, Paul Gould, in his book, he summarized the point. So I want to cover those four points, or three points, and then the conclusion. And and look at each of the uh, premises and see if they all follow, uh, if they're sound and they're, you know, um, cogent. And uh, may, maybe I, I might play devil's advocate and uh, ask you guys some questions. But the first one is, uh, there is a universal moral law. So what do we mean by there is a universal moral law? What do we mean by that? Well, just just that, that, that everybody agrees that, you know, killing babies for the fun of it is wrong. It's just, <clears throat> there's, you know, yeah, you, you should always... Uh, you should love your children. You should. Um, you never take another man's wife. Things, things. Though there are certain standards that we understand in our conscience that there is a right and a wrong way to do things, and we have an obligation as human beings to live up to those standards. It uh, seems like everybody also has the golden rule as yeah. part of their, uh, you to, know, to moral. Some, to some, yeah. yeah, but there's a dis- uh, distinction there as well uh, with the gol- golden rule. Uh, the Christian worldview is very much, very much um, proactive in the right. sense that yeah. do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. Yeah. Whereas the the rest of the world, it's kind of the other way: do not do unto others as you don't want them to do unto so you. So it's yeah. it's passive, yeah, yeah. and that, and that passive. does make a difference. And and matter of fact, it is. Uh, I remember reading in Buddhist theology, uh, the the Bud- the practicing Buddhist will put a bowl of rice out on the doorstep. Because it benefits him to make sure that he's not incurring any karmic debt. And the Buddhist monk, who's living a vow of poverty, takes the rice because the vow of poverty is benefiting him in order to escape his karmic debt. Christianity, it's not that. It's, it's if a man asks you to walk one mile, go with him too. It's not to benefit you. It's, matter of fact, to serve him and benefit the other. So there is a very big, even though they sound the same, there's a very big distinction between those two. Uh, An important uh, and necessary distinction to maintain uh, is that usually people tend to conflate uh, 
two ideas of law, right? There's a law of the land, which might be very much relative in terms of the context of the land. I drive on the right-hand side here, and you drive on the left-hand side. But we all agree we shouldn't be driving over other people yeah, when right. they are crossing the road, right? And that two we should avoid of, each other <laughs> so we don't get into accidents. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Uh, so there are two different kinds of laws. Uh, so when we are talking about the universal law, we are talking about the law uh, uh, in, in terms of that, that contributes to human flourishing at the end, in the manner in which uh, the lawgiver, or whom we call God, um, you know, has, or uh, as he would want us to. Okay, I want to move quickly, because, you know, we're going to run a time, you guys know that. (laughs) But uh, number two, so so we all agree that that, uh, a universal moral law does exist, Mm -hmm. applies to everybody, all times. Uh, The second premise, uh, as summarized here, if there is a universal moral law. There is a moral lawgiver. So I know we were talking about this during the, you know, before our show here. And um, I guess you could pause it, albeit unsuccessful, but you could imagine an impersonal lawgiver. Can you, is the question. Can you imagine a machine uh if it's impersonal, it's not a person, right? Uh, or a force. Well, we have we have impersonal laws. They're they're called the laws of nature. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, and, and we call them that because they seem inviolable until, of course, somebody can figure out a way around them, right? If if somebody invented an anti gravity machine, you know, nobody's going to say, "Oh, you can't break the law of gravity." It's like, no, I can. So why shouldn't I? So, so there's there that kind of law is not morally binding. It's not it's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. Right. Moral laws are prescriptive. They're what we should do, not just explaining what. And happens. that's a good distinction between natural law versus, let's say, a moral. Right. Law. Yeah. Moral law is prescriptive. Natural law is descriptive. And if it's prescriptive, that means that there's somebody prescribing it. Right, it's right. it's it, it's. Uh, and I, I think the very fact that when we are saying moral laws are universal, then we are we have to then give that uh, the standard that we are appealing uh, universally has to be universal yeah. and above the individuals Absolutely. in the society as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. What about uh, the let's say someone who invokes the Platonist atheist? As you know, you know Plato is famous for his forms, and uh, let's just say properties are floating out there. Can 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 moral laws just be properties not attached to persons? I can't even imagine. They don't that. have any authority. I mean, it, what, yeah. what would? It, it's just it, again that becomes a description then, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, it, and we were talking about this right. that there has to be a certain kind of intentionality behind yeah. a certain kind of law uh, that anyone is prescribed to follow. And how do we get that intentionality? Is when we uh, we can appeal to a person. Uh, a personhood, right? Not not anything impersonal. Yeah. One of the examples I give is that Harry, say you are uh, one of the most noble persons human history in in the hu- human history, you know, and I'm the worst person you could imagine. And we are walking, uh, say, into a room, and there's an open wire, electric wire, and we both step onto it, right? It's a force, and I think we both gonna get the same kind of jolt, electric, you know, uh, uh, shock. It's not going to judge whether you are a good person or I'm a, I'm a bad person. There's ultimately going to be the same kind of end for both of us. And I think that's how it is. I mean, with moral law, we have to assume that there is this point of justice that needs to be met. And that has to happen through a judgment. An impersonal uh, being or impersonal thing doesn't judge. Doesn't judge. And there can't be any intentionality when a law is prescribed. Yeah. That, that's why karma doesn't make much sense because who's, who, who's prescribing the laws? Who's doing the judging? Right. It's, it's this impersonal universal force, but how can it do that? So, so the third premise is, um, and I think we covered this already, gentlemen, but if there is a moral lawgiver, it must be something beyond the material yeah. cosmos. Yeah. Intentionality, uh, as Jacob said, intentionality is a prob is a, a, an attribute of a mind. Yeah. And it's, only an attribute of a mind. There, there, nothing else can be intentional. Hey, that's simple enough. Uh, so we know, we affirm that it can't be a material thing. It, it cannot be a material. It has to be a person. Conclusion is, therefore, there is something beyond 
the material cosmos. That it has that exercises intentionality yeah. that is a mind that is has a moral um understanding itself it, it, it's a person it has so it's an so it's a person and has a will and has a will yeah. for us as well as yeah so you, so it's a it's an immaterial person whose uh, morality comes from itself which, that therefore you can label it as all good mm-hmm. And uh, sits on, has an authority over us so that we need to obey yeah. the moral laws that it's prescribing to us. And I would even just add as, as believers in Christ, uh, the fact that throughout the scripture we read that the moral law of the nature of God that we are talking about is an extension of the fact that he is a loving God. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what makes it more, even more beautiful and okay. sustainable. Well, I hear the music playing. And so uh, if you're listening to us, we want to make sure that you come back after a few messages from our sponsors. Right. Well, welcome back to the apologetics.com radio show. My name is Harry Edwards. I'm your host for this evening. We've been talking about uh, moral values and how uh, that points to God. And we talked about how it's one of our favorites because uh, people get it. Uh, We can all relate to it. We know what our consciences do. We know good versus bad. And uh, so... Uh, I, I know uh, in chapter 6 of Paul Gould's book, he talks a little bit about, um, or maybe in another, you know, uh, readings, but um, it's so ubiquitous. It's so, it's not even complicated, the fact that uh, we are guided by a set of moral values. That atheists, all right, and, and by the way, we're not claiming that uh, people who don't know the Lord are morally corrupt. We're not. We're Matter not claiming. of fact, that's an interesting point because yeah. atheists complain about that. They make that objection all the time. Are you saying that I'm immoral? Right, right. And they're offended by it, which actually proves the point. You know <laughs> that that hey, yeah. you obviously do have yeah. a, an understanding of morality, and, and they do accept it. It's just when you say absolute uh, moral values, that's where they object. But uh even some atheists uh they they don't even brush it aside because they know that uh moral values do exist but some have said it's illusory yeah michael roos michael roos that's michael roos uh, uh, or or uh uh i guess one of the more popular ones is, is the darwinian model where uh, morality helps us survive that's right yeah. it helps us survive but beyond that it can't say anything. And by the way, I mean, they're, they're also perplexed if you just ask the question, well, why survival anything? Yeah. Well, why, why survive? That's, right. that's the question that I generally yeah. ask. Well, why I is said, that a value? I said, Wait a minute. Maybe. Yeah. You know, are you telling me that the asteroid was evil when it knocked out the dinosaurs and, and caused that great extinction event? Maybe we should just create nuclear war and let the cockroaches have the earth. Maybe it's their time to survive. That's right. And the other question would be, does um, uh, an immoral act, if it leads to someone's survival, becomes a moral act? Yeah, right. Not necessarily. Um, yeah, yeah. It, 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 Just because I'm eating dinner doesn't mean I'm doing a moral good. Right. Yeah. All right. So, um, again, we've been skirting around the conclusion, but it really lands on uh, – so – if there is uh, something beyond the material cosmos, well, well what you were describing a while ago, yeah. then he sounds like God to me, right? Yeah, exactly. There's nothing. There's nothing left, really. I yeah. mean, that you're talking this, about this object beyond the material cosmos is God. I mean, yes. that's just what it is. Um, yeah, and not just any God uh, has to be a personal, personal God. God. Yeah, as opposed to let's say uh, the God of the Hindus. Yeah. which is many. And-, and so it's basically a pantheistic worldview. At the same time, uh, it's a mix of different worldviews. There is, a no- there is a notion of ultimate reality, which is one, right? But it, it kind of like permeates into all of our existence. But this ultimate reality is uh, an impersonal God um, who has uh, this emanation of personal beings through whom justice is done. 
So when it comes to good and evil, one of the common terms, which is very much understood here in the West, but it's in a different way is the whole idea of karma, right? If you, if you do some, some evil in this life, you have to come back in a lower form uh, to basically repay, right? Uh, and do some good works. But if you do good works in this life, you have to come back again. Why? Because you need to be reaping the rewards of the good work that you have done. So a goal of a Hindu is neither to do good or evil, but to have a balance in their life. Why? Because they themselves are uh, uh, the captain of the ship that they have to lead to the ultimate point of justice. Because this ultimate reality who is impersonal cannot actually give them any justice. Right, right. So again, you mentioned how that's why longing in that culture is very real. Uh, Yeah, because um, their current worldview just can't uh, support a flourishing life. uh, The longing is common regardless of where you go. The longing for justice, the longing for human dignity, the longing for significance. I have never met a single person who would deny the fact that they have all these three. Yeah, yeah. And again, that's another C.S. Lewis thing, the whole longing. We talked about this in previous shows, yeah. That um, if, in general, if you long for something, there must be something that ought to satisfy it. Yeah, so if you're hungry, huh, uh, there must be be food to satisfy my hunger. And from a Christian worldview, I would say there is a who who satisfies, and not just something. So I want to segue with all of this, you know, since we're talking about uh, moral values, and as you know, especially uh, atheists online, they like to point out all of the evil Mm. that Christians have done. And uh, and we talk a, a, a big game, so to speak, right? But then uh, when we look at, at our history, at least how they, uh, the atheists and skeptics, how they view our history, they would ac- accuse Christianity of all sorts of evil. Uh, so they would just mention the Crusades or the Inquisition or the, the witch burnings, you know. Um, how would you guys respond to that? So, uh, in, in fact, I did find the quote, Osginus, who is a... a popular evangelical leader and social critic, he said this of the church, actually. He goes, the church is a leading spawning ground for atheists. Now, you, you need to understand where he's coming from. Um, of course he loves the church. But as you know, uh, like for instance, I know uh, a Barna poll was conducted a few years ago, and it um, showed that 87% of young people who leave the church is because they say that the church is judgmental and uh, the church is uh, hypocritical. I think we need to acknowledge that. But uh, but let's go on to some of the exaggerated claims with uh, the Crusades. I know, Lenny, you said you had a good response for that. So well, if somebody says, well, what about the Crusades, you know? Yeah, yeah. well, the, the first point that one must realize is it's it's uh, what is known in logic as a two-coque Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, just because there's one wrong, saying "Well, you did it too" yeah. is not an is not an answer. Yeah. You know, the, the the Christians did the Crusades too, so they they were evil. So therefore, that doesn't prove that right. that there's no God or that evil doesn't exist. And I tell what I tell everybody is the first rule in in any in understanding any belief system is you never judge a belief system by its abuse, and that's just fair. I'm not going to judge you by by atheists like you know maybe Dawkins when he gropes the lady in the elevator, or um, the atheist who starts shooting people up, you know. And you shouldn't judge Christians who don't do what Jesus did or or, or violate Jesus' law. If if Jesus is the standard, and we don't live up to it, most Christians try. Some are drastically violating that law. But the Crusades specifically, there's a lot of misunderstanding. First of all, it wasn't there, – there seems to be a picture out there that the, the Crusades were Christians invading Muslim lands. That's not the case. What happened was there was hundreds of years of Muslim aggression prior to the Crusades. Those were Christian cities, Antioch. Jerusalem, right? Matter of fact, the Eastern Orthodox Church still talks about the Jerusalem Sea, the Antioch Sea. These were these were 
Christian cities that Muslims invaded, and the Christians were mounting a response to save their brethren. Yeah, after so, hundreds of years. After actually. hundreds yeah. of years, um, right, right. and you can you, uh, Scott Thong writes a timeline: six thirty four Muslim invasion of Byzantine Christian Empire Palestine. By six fifty two, they're operating. They're occupying Christian Sicily in Italy. Uh, they invade Nubia in seven hundred. They attack and evade Spain, Portugal, and, Gore, uh, and Gibraltar, and they try to invade France in 711 AD, but Charlemagne yeah. stops that, kicks them back. Uh, they went all the way to Asia, too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. 1064, Muslims invade West Asia. The Turkish Muslims attack Asia Minor and Syria. Again, those were the seven churches that, that John planted that was fully Christianized by that time. Um, in 1095, the First Crusade begins. Right, so, right. so from 634 to 10. 95, it's nearly 400 years of Muslim aggression. And it's that when the Christians, okay, we got to go and, and try and rescue our brethren. Right, right. So that's what they were. And most um, crusaders weren't going for the the goal. As a matter of fact, it impoverished most yeah, people. Yeah. It was it was really a, a bad scene. And it's it's just a it's just a myth. Now, did Christians overreact and did some Christians do very evil things by the time the fourth, fifth crusade rolled around? Yes, absolutely. They, you know, they're in this point in time, they were just as bloodthirsty in their warfare as anybody else. And they were part of the culture of their day. And they, they responded to Muslim aggression with, with over abundance of Christian aggression. And they were held accountable to that. So I'm not, Dis, uh, disputing that horrible, horrible things happened, but I am saying that it's not wasn't initially Christian aggression that caused the Crusades. It was a response, right? And in fact, for a while, Muslims took it all back, anyways. Like in 1187, if, if my history yeah. serves me right. So um, yeah, so there's it was that Constantinople exact- held up until the 14th century. It was it, you know. Yeah. Constantine was a brilliant military strategist. He he looked around Rome and said, "I can't protect. There's seven hills that the high ground would the enemies would be on. I can't protect this place. I'm moving it." And he moved it to Constantinople, and that was obviously a brilliant move because it took the Muslims forever to try and break through that, but they finally did. Yeah, exactly, they did. So uh, again, the the number of deaths is also exaggerated, and maybe now's a good time to if we're just going to compare deaths from Christians and deaths from atheists, maybe let's do that comparison. I know there's well, there's an are interesting there. yeah, there's yeah. an interesting book that catalogs all of the wars okay. of, in human history of all the wars in human history. About six percent of them are religious in nature. Most of them are not religious. They use religion that the, the leaders use, but they were looking for power or land. Right, right. So that's right. it's an exaggeration or to e- say ethnic, what a, ethnic strife, ethnic and, strife, yeah. yeah, all of that kind right. of thing. In fact, you said six percent, six percent. But of the six percent, half of those are Muslim mm. in in character. The other half is all the other faiths. Interesting. So. Yeah. So that, yeah, there, that's yeah, close to the numbers I found. It was like one percent. If you're going to yeah. account for all of the different changes, one percent would would be attributed to the Crusades, Inquisitions, the witch burnings. Yeah, when you compare that to Stalin, Mao, and Hitler. Oh yeah, not not even a comparison. Those guys are yeah. those guys killed more people in the 20th century than, than right, right. most of the. World. Well, here's a number. So we we think Hitler, right? Right. That's who we think of as like the the mass murderer, despot, whatever. But uh, his number is about 10 million. Well, that's nothing compared to Stalin, which is twice for Stalin. Mao is twenty seventy million. Something like yeah, yes, yeah, seventy. So beat. Among the three of them already, you got a hundred million compared to, let's say, the Inquisitions, the uh, Crusades, and the witch burnings. Probably two hundred thousand. That's the n- number I came up with. But again, th- this is powerful because we're not even mentioning Lenin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, Pol Pot, Ceausescu, right. Fidel Castro, and Kim Jong Un. We're not even mentioning those guys, but. You know, or Genghis Khan, yeah. um, the, 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 Alexander the Great. You know, I mean, 
right. pick anyone through history. <laughs> really create the comparison's not even there. So hopefully our, our listeners find this persuasive and powerful. So next time somebody says, well, what about the Crusades? What about the Inquisitions? You know, just in history, it's, it's evident that uh, Christians were just defending their lands right, at that point. Let's go to the brighter side of things. Christianity being a force for good, for human flourishing. What are some of the examples that you guys find there? I think one of the major contributions and gifts of the Christian uh, world uh, to the rest of the world was the fact that the shift in terms of um, governance of people, right? Uh, even today, if we see much of the tension between nations is between two ideas, the idea of nation as being sovereign nation, and then the idea of imperialism. Uh, and I think Christianity brought about that major shift in terms of understanding that nation uh, is an idea within boundary, that, that they are uh, sovereign in terms of ruling people, right? The, the very idea, the American idea of we the people, where do we get that idea from? Very much from the Reformation, the idea that the priesthood of all believers, mm. right? And then you conduct your nation in such a way that it, ultimately it's meant to be discipled and then glorify God, that, as I would say. Uh, but I think this idea of nation, people don't talk about this, especially here in the West. I'm surprised that people have no idea that, uh, that uh, in the 20th century, we see the kind of nations that are standing as sovereign nations. It's all because of uh, the very Christian idea of what nation is like. It was uh, uh, an end to this idea of imperialism going and spreading this idea of or, or, or having control over other lands. But at the same time, God, God in human history has even used that to bring about the good. One, like Christians are the ones who have championed in terms of education. Paul Gould talks about that. The modern universities were set up. Yeah, by right. the Christians, right? Yeah. Uh, they, they, they cared for the creation, and therefore what they did was give rise to the idea of modern science. Uh, we don't see those coming up out by, uh, in cultures that hold to a different worldview, yeah. but we do see that Christians have contributed but, a lot. Yeah, and let's get, in, let's get into specifics. So, for example, infanticide. Infanticide is a practice that was uh, actually replete in the ancient world. It was practiced uh, widely, uh, even in the so-called elevated eras of Rome, you had children who were abandoned by the Tiber. We even have a letter from a, a Roman gentleman who was out on a business trip. His wife was ready to be delivered. And he says, you know, I hope to be home by the time that you have the child. If it's a son, keep it. If it's a daughter, discard it. And the Christians would be coming by and they'd scoop these babies up off the river because they were made in the image of God. Mm. And it, again, puzzled the Romans because if, you, if you're in an agrarian society, every child you have would be a net benefit, right? You got another farmhand, unless the child was sickly or crippled. Then it's a net negative because you have to feed the child, which means that there's less food for everybody else. And we're not even sure that you're going to have one meal a day, maybe. You don't know that. To put another mouth on the table, that's rough. So, and girls, of course, you had to pay a dowry. They were, you know, they, they were seen as less valuable. So you saw this, this process in China when the one child policy came out, you saw, again, women were, were, you know, the, the, was it almost a two to one ratio mm -hmm. of boys being born to, and they'd have abortions for the girls. Mm -hmm. uh, Christianity flipped that. It first, it instilled the idea that, so the first orphanages were Christians. When the plagues hit, and Tertullian these, and the Eusebius and the Christian historians that talk about, when all of the Roman aristocracy was fleeing to their country villas, leaving their sick relatives behind, it was the Christians who were running in. And Rodney Stark says, it may very well be that Christianity became dominant because of two things. First of all, the Christians would develop, I mean, now some would die because of the disease, right. but others who were in there would develop immunity toward it and they wouldn't have to worry about it. Secondly, the people whom they nursed who were not even believers remembered that. Yeah, <laughs> became believers. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, you, you, my Uncle Zeke took off, but you, yeah. a stranger, helped me. Yeah. First hospitals were Christian. Yeah. 
Christian elevated women like no uh, aspect had before. When Paul writes, you know, you're neither slave nor uh, free, male nor female, yeah. Jew nor Greek, that was earth shattering. So much so that you have guys like Tom Holland, who's an agnostic. He's not even a believer. He writes this huge tome saying how Christianity single handedly shaped our understanding of what the world is and what goodness is. Yeah. In Western society, and, and he was in love with the idea of ancient history till he really started studying the Romans and the Greeks, and he got, oh my gosh, these people are barbarians! I couldn't have lived with them. They're they're just savages. Yeah. It's the Christianity that made the difference. And even today, if you travel to uh, uh, maybe to Africa or to the Eastern world, uh, and you uh, say if you fall sick, I mean, you go to a hospital, and what right. kind of hospital you would go to? Yeah. Christians. I laugh when the yeah. when the anthropologist on the History Channel talks about, you know, the ancient Amazonian tribes who have a small footprint and if there's a child that's sick, you know, they may slaughter a chicken, but you have to understand that it's and it, it, there's a little bit of arrogance there because if he gets yellow fever, He's not going to settle for the guy slaughtering a chicken for him. He's going to go to the nearest Western medical clinic as soon as he can to get treated for, you know, all of that stuff. And I also asked, uh, uh, tell me about uh, a Christian charity or or a major organization that goes around the world and helps people regardless of their faith. But show me one Muslim organization that uh, a major international organization that goes about helping people of other religion. Or a Hindu organization that goes about and helps people of other religion. Yeah. Any major one? Yeah, I can think of any. Yeah. So, so you you have again you have, I mean, look at the look at the Aztecs. They slaughtered over eighty thousand human sacrifices in the course of one century, and we've got the bones. That's where we get the count on this stuff. Hmm. You know, that was the norm. All these other folks, it was it's us versus everybody else. It's it's the Greeks and the barbarians, or it's the Romans, you know, and the Vandals. It's 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 the good guys because we're smarter than everybody else, and that's how the world has always been divided. And so, if you're an Incan, and the Aztecs captured you, oh great, we got more sacrifices. You're expendable. Yeah. Wow. This has been an amazing discussion. I know I wish we could keep going, but uh, I want to move to um, how do we obtain the goods? All right. So the the idea is that, uh, all right, Christianity is true. It's done good for the world, uh, whether you're atheist or a believer. Um, That's just the effects of Christianity. But like I said, in today's culture where We've lost enchantment, as gold would say, right? We've lost the supernatural, uh, and, and uh, Christianity is cast in a bad light now. How do we regain people's confidence again? Uh, how do we regain uh, the credibility that Christ- Christianity once had? And we could go on with several well, strategies. Selflessness, like we like we talked about, uh, you know. Um, I think the church really fumbled, say. During the AIDS crisis, yeah, that's a good point. Because there. again, even Martin Luther was writing about the bubonic plague, and COVID is one of the reasons why I started researching how the church responded in plague times. Uh, but Martin Luther said, "Look, you're supposed to. You're not supposed to be foolish, right? You 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 stay inside. You don't you don't tempt God. But if there is an individual who's sick." I'm going to go and minister to that individual. And it's in God's hands whether I get the plague or not. And that has always been the mindset of Christianity. Again, scoop the child up from the river. Is it going to cost me extra money? Am I taking food out of my mouth? Yes, but that is a person who's in the image of God and needs to be redeemed. It costs me something. That kind of response is so powerful. Nobody curses Mother Teresa. Nobody curses Mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter what you say, yeah. everybody holds her in high esteem. And I would say we need to take the final words of Jesus seriously. He said, All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. 
So go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that, I've, that, that Jesus has taught us. Mm-hmm. Right? We got to be teaching all that Jesus has taught to the nations mm. and translate them into actions that, that will show them that we really serve a living God and we walk the walk uh, as Christ has and as, as his followers. Right? And that's the way to actually um, lead people and draw them closer to the gospel, the truth of the gospel. All right. In the next couple of minutes that we have remaining, I'm just curious because uh, I know Paul Gold covers this in chapter six, uh, what I'm calling strategies, right? So he mentions uh, Dreher, uh, Rob, mm, the Benedict, Dr- option, the, yeah. Benedict option. He also mentions uh, Hunt, Dr. Hunter, uh, the whole f- faithful presence within. Uh, what are you guys' thoughts on that? I know uh, James Davison Hunter's "How to Change the World," right? Yeah, yeah, yes. "How to Change the World." Yeah, yeah, I love the title of that. Yeah. So, where do you guys fall there in terms of strategies? Now, in terms of like boots on the ground type of a thing, like you said, uh, selflessness. Uh, there are certain things that are uh, just what I'm calling basic, like prayer for sure. Oh, absolutely. Prayer is huge, uh, but uh, with all of that as givens, what? If we're going to strategize, what what are good strategies that you guys want to adopt? And maybe, uh, wow, I, maybe we have two minutes left. But um, how, how do we uh, maybe differentiate, or how do we choose between uh, two competing models of culture change? One is saying top, uh, top to bottom, mm-hmm. and one is bottom bottom up. Yeah. So you, you I, guys I would, want to I, explain a little bit of. I would say we have to keep a good balance between yeah. both. It's not just uh, uh, either or kind of situation. We need both, uh, top down as well as bottom up. What we need is all of Christ for all of life. Not that he is dissected, that he's only relevant in one sphere of our life, not another. Uh, church must, uh, everything that we do must be an extension of the church, extension of our worship unto God. And I think um, it's it's our responsibility to be the light and the salt of the earth that Christ has called us to be and do that faithfully. So recognizing what God has called us to, being faithful in that. And one thing I would say, regardless of our age, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of who we are, we need to be uh, understanding our calling and being faithfully available in that space to assume sacrificial responsibilities. That's necessary. The Christian way to go up is by going down on the foot of cross. And trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, who has, who is the Lord of the resurrection, and He has made us into children of resurrection. Well, thanks, Jacob. You have you had the last word there. So, you've been listening to Apologetics.com Radio, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Our hope is that you've learned some aspect about the Christian worldview that strengthens your faith and make you want to learn more. Special thanks to my panel, Jacob, Lenny, and to our uh, engineer who makes everything work for us. Uh, Until next time, good night.